I'm going to start in Acts chapter 17, but uh, if you would like, go ahead and turn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to give you a little bit of background and set up the, uh, the things that we're going to read in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is Acts 17 is Paul's uh, one and only visit to the city of Thessalonica that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, I guess, they came to Thessalonica where it was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. This, uh, uh, this verse is translated in a couple of different ways, this, uh, this phrase, uh, lewd fellows of a baser sort. Some of the modern translations translate it to uh, worthless uh, riffraff, evil men, and so forth. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy took up unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Apparently Paul and Silas were staying there in, uh, in this guy's Jason's house. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now, folks, I got to tell you, just as kind of a side note, this is my favorite description of the church. Those that have turned the world upside down have come here too. Whom Jason hath received, and these do all contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. They made this guy put up money to pay for whatever damages would occur with the riots in the city and so forth. Verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The word noble has to do with bringing, upbringing. In other words, it's saying these were a higher dignity or higher class of people in Berea. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things be so. Now, the reason I read that to you folks is because, uh, uh, turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The reason I read that to you is because I wanted you to see the reputation of Thessalonica. The only thing we really know about these people is that they were about the lowest class of folks that you could find. Now, when Paul writes to the, to the uh, Thessalonians in uh, the first letter that he wrote to them, and again, like I said, we don't have any record that he, that he ever made it back there again. But when he writes to them, he writes to them about some simple things. He says he commends them and tells them that he prays for them always and he gives thanks for them always because of their faith and their love in the name of, of Jesus. He talks about some things that they know that happened to him in Philippi. 
Those things are in Acts chapter 16 that are identified. He talks to them about the coming of the Lord. One of the things about Thessalonica that makes them interesting to me is that we don't have record of how long Paul was there, but it doesn't make it sound like it was a real long time, maybe a couple of months, maybe as little as as two months, maybe as much as three months, maybe four. But in that time, he seemed to have taught them about the coming of the Lord, taught them about what we know as the rapture or what is called the rapture, the catching away of the church when Jesus comes. He taught them more about that than maybe anybody else. At least he wrote back to them more about it than any of the other churches that he established. And so finally, when he gets to chapter 5, in this short letter, Paul is wrapping up everything that he intended to say to them, at least at this point. And he's giving them some real quick bullet points on how to be good Christians, how to live a good Christian life. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. He said, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. These unruly ones were the lewd and baser sort of people that Acts 17 talks about. So apparently it's still going on. It may even be among the church. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. This word feeble-minded means small in spirit. It would be nice if we could effectively teach everybody, but some folks you just have to comfort. Some folks are never going to grow into the place where they stand on their own in faith, and those folks you just have to comfort. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, this seems simple enough, but I think the point needs to be made that the church is supposed to be involved in other people's lives to the degree that we can strengthen one another and help. So that doesn't work real well in the Western society. The American church knows very little about the fellowship and the communion that the Bible talks about among the church. Now, it seems that, or in many cases, I guess, in many cases, the only ones that are involved in other people's lives are busybodies, but the Bible speaks against that. But we're of the mindset, we mean the American people particularly, we are of the mindset that we'll take care of everything ourselves. We're the independent, right off into the sunset type of attitude. And what happens so often is that people fail to get the spiritual strength and support and, and comfort that is supposed to exist in the church. How would we, the church, see that no man render evil for evil? How do you do that? See, I don't know enough about your life, your day-to-day life, to know what you're doing and how you're responding to situations. I, I don't even know the situations you're in, in many cases. And the same thing's true for the people sitting all around you. I think the American church looks at it as a sign of weakness if we tell everybody what's going on. And there comes a point where it would be, sure. But we're supposed to be involved with each other. 
We're supposed to be of the character and the mindset where we can trust one another and lean on each other for strength when we need it. Now, honestly, folks, I'm not sure how to get there. I don't see anything in the Scripture, particularly the book of Acts, where the Holy Ghost directed the people specifically toward that purpose. There are a lot of things that, uh, that happened in the early church, in the, particularly in Jerusalem, where people were eating meals together and living their lives together and so forth. But the reason it seems that that took place in the manner that it did was because people were having to, to leave their families by becoming Christians. They lost family connections. They lost family support. They were disowned in many cases by their families, their parents, their kinsmen. And so this new family, or maybe we should say the exodus from their old family, brought them into the church, which was the only family they now have. And so you could well understand that that would, be the, the, uh, that would create a situation where it would draw people together. You know as well as I do that if you, if you come across somebody that's experiencing family trouble similar to what you've lived through or you've experienced, there's a bond there. There's a commonality where you can help somebody. You can tell somebody how God strengthens you. You can encourage somebody in what you did or how you handled the situation yourself. And certainly we should want to provide that kind of support to others. And I'm sure everybody does. Even the, the most independent of us still care about other people. But the church is supposed to be a lot more tightly knit community than we are. So Paul is in his bullet points. He said, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. But ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Now, folks, he's writing to people that could at any point, they're part of the Roman Empire, they could at any moment experience persecution. One thing could set off a spark that just messes everything up in their city and the Romans come in and take all the Christians captive. We saw in Acts chapter 17 that things are hanging by a thread, so to speak, or at least they appear that way. Because at the slightest incident, in this case, the envy of the Jewish leaders, a riot starts, an uproar is taking place or does take place in the city. So Paul knows who he's writing to. He's writing to people that are in, living their lives on the edge of persecution at any moment. But he says, rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. It's easy to get tired of praying, folks. When you don't see any results or don't see the results you want to see, it's easy to give up on praying. And the devil's always right there. You know as well as I do. He's always right there telling you, if this was going to work, it would have worked by now. You're wasting your time. Why don't you give up on this praying and standing in faith stuff? which is proof that it's working. 
Because if it wasn't working, he wouldn't care if you gave up or not. As a matter of fact, if you were standing in faith, but it was a false faith that wasn't working, he'd want you to stay there. Anytime he can get you to the place where it's not working between you and God, that's the place he wants you to stay. So rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. He doesn't just tell you to stay away from evil, he says stay away from the stuff that looks evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. Now with just a, a slight mention of some things. Here where it says quench not the spirit and despise not prophesying. Apparently and there's some church historical documents that bear this out. But apparently there were so many prophesyings and prophecy was such a uh, common thing among the Thessalonians that people got to the point where they were sick of hearing it. Now, the historical documents don't tell us about the prophesyings. They don't tell us whether they were true or actual or real or not. And it's easy for somebody to get in the flesh. It's easy for somebody for whether their motives are good or, or bad. It's easy for people to speak for God or try to speak for God but really they're just moved by their own emotions a lot of times people prophesy what they want to happen for somebody else not what God's saying is going to take place well if you've ever experienced that to any degree or to much degree at all it creates a situation where you start to cringe when somebody says thus saith the Lord And so apparently they were at the place where the church has just given up on prophesying altogether. The attitude of the people was, don't say what you think God is saying. Just leave it alone and let it be. But if we take that attitude, even though it might be as a, uh, the result of, a, of somebody misusing what the Bible talks about the Holy Ghost doing, even if it's for the situation or resulting from the situation where people have wrong motives, and a lot of people prophesy just because, just because they want you to think they know what God's saying. But even if it's done in the wrong way, even if it's done for the wrong purpose, to take a, a, a hands-off or stand-off position from any of the gifts of the Spirit can quench the Holy Ghost. It can stop him from moving when he really wants to, irrespective of things that have happened in the past. And notice all these things. He goes on and says again in verse 21, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. This is most probably a reference to that prophecy or the way prophecy is taking place in their church. He's saying not every prophecy is going to be right. Not every prophecy is going to be good. Not, not every prophecy is going to be accurate. So you're going to have to be spiritual enough to judge what's right and what's wrong. He said, prove all things. How do you prove out a prophecy? Time's the only thing that can do it. Brother Hagin used to tell stories about prayer groups that would uh, take place that people would tell him about. 
there was one prayer group in a, a church that he was ministering in where the lady came up and said, I'm a part of a prayer group, and, and I don't know why we call it a prayer group because all we do is prophesy to each other. And she wanted to know, she asked him some questions, wanting to know if it was right. And so he asked her, he said, well, what comes of it? Have you received any prophesying or any prophecies over you? And she said, yeah, and everything I get is bad. And so he questions her about it. He says, like what? And she said, well, they prophesied that my husband was going to leave me. She, he, he said, uh, well, when did they say this was going to happen? And she said, within six months. He said, when did it take place? She answered, over a year ago. And so he said, well, that's real easy to see then. That's real easy to, to judge there. But see, a lot of people just want to be seen as speaking for God. Folks, let me let you in on a little secret about that. If that's not God's will for you, you don't want it. Because there's a responsibility that comes with, with you speaking for God into somebody else's life. And see, not many people want the responsibility of it. They want what they think is glamour or esteem or whatever from telling somebody what they ought to do. But God's not in the business of telling anybody what they ought to do in the age, the church age where the Holy Ghost is there to direct us. And as far as I'm concerned, if I've got the Holy Ghost to tell me what to do, directs me, why do I need somebody else to say it? Now I realize not everybody has the confidence in the leading of the Holy Ghost that you or I might have. But that's not really an excuse, is it? Anybody can develop that confidence. And I found in my experience when something is prophesied to me, even that which bears witness with what I have in my own heart from the Holy Ghost, it usually means trouble's coming. It usually means that difficulty is coming down the road to such a degree that you need something extra. So I'm perfectly happy by not getting anything by prophecy. But I have to be careful with that attitude just like he told them. I can't take that attitude to such a point or such a degree that I quench the Holy Ghost and stop him from moving in any way. You remember when Paul was on his way to uh, Jerusalem? It was after Acts chapter 19, late, later in the chapter, or about the middle of the chapter, I guess. But it says that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. In other words, the Holy Ghost was leading him to go. But then he said, and he gave us some, uh, uh, the Holy Ghost gives us some record of this too. But Paul identified that every city that he went to, people would prophesy to him and tell him not to go. Because they foresaw in the spirit that, that uh, bonds and afflictions awaited him. Or in other words, that he was going to be taken captive by the Jews. It culminated in when he went to Philip's house, Philip the, the evangelist, which the Bible says he had four daughters who prophesied. Well, the fact that the Holy Ghost gives us record of that must mean they were proficient and accurate in the things that they saw. 
And there was a prophet from Jerusalem, or from Antioch, I'm sorry, named Agabus, that came down and acted out what he saw in the Spirit. He took Paul's girdle and he wrapped his hands. And he said, thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall it be for the person that owns this girdle. In other words, he acted out the imprisonment or taken in chains that Paul would experience when he went to Jerusalem. And there's some real interesting things about that story because Agabus is the only one that doesn't tell him not to go. Agabus, who's a prophet, stands apart from the others who prophesied because everybody that prophesied and witnessed Paul by the Holy Ghost that the Jews were going to take him captive, they all said, that means you, don't, you shouldn't go. But Agabus doesn't say that. Agabus just says, here's what's going to happen if you go. But everybody in that company, the Bible says, meaning Philip's house, and everybody that was there with him tried to persuade Paul not to go. But Paul answered them and said, why do you mean, why in this situation do you break my heart? He says, I know I'm going to be taken captive. But that's not a reason not to go if God sent you. Now you want to see spiritual maturity, take a look at that. Just because things aren't going to be pleasant, just because things are going to be tough, doesn't mean it's not the Holy Ghost that's leading me to go. And then it concludes the story by saying this, and this is Luke writing in Acts chapter 21. He said, when Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. In other words, Paul convinced them that it was the will of God instead of them convincing Paul not to go. Now, you've got to have some pretty serious confidence in the Holy Ghost to go against people in every city you go to. Most people I know, at the first sign of trouble or the speaking forth of the trouble, would say that's enough reason for me not to go. Here's the Holy Ghost who's telling me not to go. Then when you get to people that you trust and they tell you by the Spirit that you're going to be taken captive and they interpret that to mean that you're not supposed to go, that'd be an easy place to give up, wouldn't it? And then when the prophet Agabus comes to where Paul is and says by the Spirit, here's what's going to happen. What number of times does that make it? Was he told five times? Did he go to five, six, seven, ten cities where this warning was taking place? How many times were there people that said, Paul, you're going to be taken captive in Jerusalem. Don't go. Which one would you have quit on? Most people I know would have bailed at this hint of the first. But folks, Paul knew the voice of the Holy Ghost. He knew the leading of God to such a degree, not because he was a minister, but because he developed that, just like you and I can through the Word and through prayer. He developed such a confidence in the Holy Ghost and the direction that the Holy Ghost gives that he wasn't able to be talked out of it no matter what and no matter who.
Most people I know of, I hope you're the exception to this, but a lot of people that I know of, maybe I should say it that way, are looking for somebody with reputation to tell them what they should do so that they don't have to get close enough to the Holy Ghost leading to find out for themselves. So, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul said, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. In most things give thanks. In some things give thanks. In everything give thanks. Now notice he doesn't say give thanks to God for everything. He just says in everything we should be thankful. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Everybody wants to know the will of God. Here it is. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Now turn back with me to the Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is one of my favorite stories. There's so much you can learn from in this story. And again, as we said earlier, the Bible tells us that everything that happened to Israel Everything we have record of in Israel is as an example to be used as an example by us. In other words, it means God still works on the same principles as he did in the Old Testament. He's the same. He hasn't changed. He never changes. And so the same principles that he shows us in the Old Testament work for us. Verse 1, it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. The kingdoms have been divided by now. The 12 tribes of Israel are divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There comes a great multitude against you from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in some place which is in Engedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Notice it says Jehoshaphat feared. This report brought fear to him. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Now here's the difference between fear that's destructive and fear that works in your behalf. When fear came upon Jehoshaphat because he heard these armies that were gathering against him, he didn't run away. He didn't go cower in a corner. He knew God was his help and God was his answer. So he sought the direction of God. He sought the Lord about what he should do. Folks, fear comes to all of us. The question is, what do we do about it? Fear paralyzes a lot of people. That wasn't the case with Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah came they to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, please notice this prayer. This prayer works. O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? Notice where Jehoshaphat starts. What's going on up there, Father? 
Are you not God in heaven? In other words, he recognizes that the things that he's facing, the fear that, that of the circumstance that is coming against him, he knows that's not God's plan. He knows that's not God's best. And he starts his prayer off like, how dare somebody disrupt what God wants for me? It's what somebody has called an argumentative type of prayer. And folks, argumentative praying is some of the best way that you can go. Because the thing that creates the argument in his prayer or the foundation for what he uses to plead his case with God is what God has promised to do for Israel, specifically Judah. So he says, Are not thou, Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Are you not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? Didn't you do all this stuff, Father? Isn't that how we got here? And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name saying, if when evil comes upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, if we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, didn't you say you would hear us and help us? Yeah. Now, folks, this kind of prayer gets you in trouble with a lot of religious people. Because Jehoshaphat is challenging God based on what he knows the word of God says. Now a lot of people challenge God but they don't have any foundation for their challenge. A lot of people challenge God and say things like, God, why'd you let this happen to me? When he's not the one doing it, it's the, one, it's the devil is the one behind it. Well, that's a challenge but it's not a word-based challenge. Now if you turn that around and said, God, how is it possible that this sickness has come against me because Jesus bore our infirmities and carried our pains? And with his stripes we were healed. Now that prayer works. But you know as well as I do, there are a lot of people out there, good people, well-meaning people, maybe sincere in their love for God, but faulty in their foundation of the word. There's a lot of people that have the idea that when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God some things. I'm going to ask him, why did he let this happen to me? Now, I don't know how it works in heaven, but if it's at all possible, I want to witness everybody that asked that question. <laughs> Lord, just let me sit off to the side, close enough to hear. Because whether we know it or not, and I'm certain that most people don't recognize this, that's a challenge to God's integrity. And folks, there is nothing more sure in the universe than God's integrity. Faithful is he who called it to you. He will do it, or he will bring it to pass. Verse 10, And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, not our possession. This land is yours. They've come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, 
wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. I love this prayer, folks. Jehoshaphat says, we wouldn't have this problem if you'd let Israel invade them when we first came out of, of Egypt. But you wouldn't let us overcome them and take, uh, take their captive, take their land captive. And now look at where we are. God, are you going to stand for this? Now, this is a scary situation, folks. Nobody can argue that. Jehoshaphat says plainly, their military strength is greater than ours. If this comes down to a battle, military battle only, we're sunk. There's no shame in recognizing that your enemy is stronger than you are. But it's a a downright shame for people in that situation when they identify that their enemy is greater than them, that they don't yield to and rely on the strength of God to overcome it. See, folks, if we only face things that we could handle on our own, what would we need God for? And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Folks, there's power in united prayer. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mananiah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Why does it give us all these names and who he was from? It's establishing his pedigree. It's establishing the confidence that the people would have in him because his family has served God for generations. In other words, when he speaks, they're going to give credibility to it. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by the reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Now notice he says, Don't be afraid or dismayed. Those are two really important words. First word we understand has to do with fear. The second word we understand means to be broken down. And folks, that's the reason that the devil attaches fear to everything that he does. That's the reason he wants you to hear the doctor say something might be cancerous. Doctors have gotten to the point now where they're calling things precancerous. Folks, do you realize what precancerous means? It means non-cancerous. But by attaching the word cancerous to it, there's fear. Well, what happens when people get afraid? We talked about this a little bit just a few minutes ago. A lot of people are paralyzed by fear. In other words, the fear breaks them down. Now, that's not the only time. The beginning of a situation is not the only time the devil tries to bring fear to you. He'll use fear all the way through the, the battle. But again, the situation always becomes a matter of what are you going to do? It's a pretty common thing for people to come to me and tell me the situations. And these are usually people outside the church. But they'll come and they'll tell me about their situations. A lot of times it happens at healing school. They'll come and tell me what the doctor has diagnosed. And you can tell by the look in their eyes. They're afraid. And they're looking for me to come up with some magic word 
or magic prayer to solve their problem. And it always takes people back when I, after they tell me their, their diagnosis, their prognosis, or the circumstances. And folks usually go into great detail about how bad their situation is. And the first thing I do is I turn it back to them and I said, wow, what are you going to do? And the shock that's on the faces of so many people, they're looking for me to do something. And when I ask them, what are they going to do? It's like I slap them in the face with a cold dish rag. But folks, my prayer doesn't count unless you do something yourself. Nobody's does. No well-meaning Christian, no famous pastor or preacher can do it all for you. The question is, what are you going to do? So he says, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand you still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now he's already said in verse 16, you've got to go out against them. That's the part most people don't like. They would prefer to get a prophecy like this guy brought forth. And they want the prophecy to be, don't be concerned. Tomorrow lay on your couch and I'll work this out. But folks, the proof that you're not broken down by the fear that the devil brings is that you go out against your enemy. And look at this from God's point of view. From God's point of view, he gets the devil in exactly the situation that he wants him. Because when Israel goes out against them, they've already identified. They know that their military might is not as great as the ones coming against them. And so the devil thinks he's got them. But in reality, God's got him. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not nor be dismayed. Same two words. Folks, it's not a sign of weakness that fear comes against you. It's only a sign of weakness if you let it break you down instead of going to the one with, with the answer. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. What are they praising God for? They're praising God for the word that he's given them about victory. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. He's reminding them of what happened yesterday. Have you ever been in a service where it's just glorious and everybody's happy and you leave with the joy of the Lord and then the next day you wake up? <laughs> I 
Well, the significance of my question is that when you wake up, you don't feel like you did when you went to bed. The joy and the excitement and the happiness is dissipated overnight. So what are you going to do tomorrow? We can have a rip-roaring time in church today, but what are you going to do tomorrow? So he says, believe. Jehoshaphat says, believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before, meaning in front of the army. And to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. Now, folks, everybody wants to be on the church music team. Everybody wants to worship God when we're all here together and things are lively and fun and everybody loves each other. But Jehoshaphat recruits singers to go out in front of the army against an enemy that has much greater military might than they have themselves. Now, folks, if God's not with them, the singers become target practice. They don't have weapons. They become easy pickings. They become the first casualties of the war that's ahead. But they've got something that keeps them from being all those things. They've got the word of God. Now don't, let's don't play this down. That's all they've got. That word of God is the same word of God you have. That same promise of victory is the promise of victory you have in whatever situation you're in. It'd be easy to say that because of the way that this happened, the prophecy that comes to this guy that's greatly respected and has quite a pedigree, it'd be easy to say, well, yeah, we could believe it if we got it like that. But the way that it came has no bearing on the fact that it's God's word just like the word that you have sitting in your lap. This word of God, this prophecy that came to Israel is not any stronger than any word you have in the Bible. It's not stronger than any promise God's made, whether it be healing or victory in some other area. The word of God's all the same. This word's not more powerful than the word of God that you have. This word of God with Jehoshaphat that was given to Judah is not any more real. It's not any stronger. It's not any more powerful than what God said to you about your situation. We've already identified that fear has come against the people. Do you think that when the prophecy came forth the day before, all fear left everybody? The word of God doesn't chase fear away. It just creates a foundation to overcome it. And when they began to sing into praise, verse 22, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Moab and Mount Seir and Ammon, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy one another. Folks, here's another reason I love this story. 
people have the idea that the devil has this well-oiled machine, some kind of organization. And you'll find people that will tell you the different classifications of demons and evil spirits. I heard somebody say one time, the devil has 21 different levels of demons to use against us. And I thought to myself, how in the world would somebody know that? The only list I know of where it talks about the devil is there are principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. That's four. I'm missing 17 somewhere. (laughs) Now, folks, the devil is a liar. The devil's not just a liar to you. The devil's a liar to God. The devil is a liar to those evil spirits that are under his authority. Anything the devil would have as far as an organization would be the most poorly organized thing that you could ever have. And this story points out that people under the devil's influence can turn on each other in a heartbeat. Well, why would that be true just for these men, these armies that are motivated by the devil? Wouldn't the same thing be true for the evil spirits under his command? The devil's organization is a wreck. And one thing I like about the book of Revelation is that it tells us after the church departs from the earth, the book of Revelation then becomes one event after another of where the devil tries to do something and God messes it up. The devil claims to be God of the world and God shows him who's, who's God, who God really is. We give the devil so much credit for stuff he does not deserve. We give the devil so much credit for power that's not his. For plans to destroy us that he can't even bring about. The Bible says at the end we'll look on the devil and wonder, is this the guy that caused so much trouble? That implies to me that he's not much to look at. Doesn't it you? Verse 24. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. Think about what that means. The last two people in this crowd killed each other at the same time. There's not one left alive. And when Jehoshaphat and the people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. Now, folks, less than 24 hours before, they were facing the greatest battle, the greatest problem, the greatest, and from the natural standpoint, the greatest defeat that they could ever have. And what changed? God. The only thing that changed about their situation was God. They heard the reports. They faced the fear. 
and I know, again, I don't want to minimize this. This is a fearful thing. But remember what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. In everything, give thanks. In everything. Well, that must mean in fearful things. They faced a fearful thing. But they heard the word of the Lord and they began to sing and to praise. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 16. Paul's in the city of Philippi. Paul and his company are in the city of Philippi. Beginning in verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us. Uh, Other translations say uh, that she was a fortune teller or a soothsayer. They met a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, apparently the Holy Ghost moved on him, not the first day or the second day, but after many days. The Holy Ghost moved on him to take care of the situation. Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and brew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Verse 25, and at midnight. Now, I'm sure this was literally midnight, but it could stand for midnight in any situation that you're into. The darkest hour. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And the folks, everybody else in the prison is sitting still as can be. They didn't run. They stayed put. Now, why does the Bible say that Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises? The the circumstances they're in is painful. They've been beaten severely. So what are we to do? We've already seen what we're to do in fearful, fearful circumstances. That is, find the word and pray. Or I'm sorry, find the word of God and sing. What are we to do in painful circumstances? Well, the Bible says Paul and Silas prayed, didn't say they found the word, but the circumstances that the book of Acts tells us about how they got here. Remember, they saw a vision in the night and the man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. So they assuredly gathered that God was sending them into Macedonia. Well, Philippi is the chief city of the Macedonians. That's why they're in Philippi. They went to the biggest city. Now, this would be certainly an opportunity for them to wonder Why are these things happening? 
it could be a, a, a confusing thing for them because they found out and they received direction in not just a supernatural manner, but a spectacular move of the Holy Ghost. Before they tried to go into the, to, to different places. They tried to go into Bithynia and the Spirit suffered them not to go. They tried to go into Mysia and the Spirit said don't go there either. But now they've got a spectacular move of the Holy Ghost. To bring them to the chief city of Macedonia. And what they wind up doing is being beaten and thrust in jail. Now, it's great for us to read Paul's example, but a lot of the examples that we see in other people's lives are when trouble comes to them, when difficulty like this that causes them pain, maybe causes them confusion. That's where people, most people, unfortunately, most people take the position that I don't know why this happened. Maybe God didn't give us that dream after all. And again, the devil's trying to separate you from God's will. We see he uses pain. We know that he can use confusion. Not sure if this confusion fits this case or not. But certainly painful does. So what are we supposed to do in painful things? Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Now, the significance to me about the prisoners hearing them, what would they have heard them pray? What would Paul and Silas have been praying in the middle of the prison late into the night? Well, if it was me, I'd be praying to get out of there. Wouldn't you? And when they sang, they had to sing a song of victory to bring about the results that they got. Remember in uh, the uh, story we just read with Jehoshaphat, the singers began to sing for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. They had to be singing, they meaning Paul and Silas, had to be singing something to magnify God and his greatness. The fact that God was greater than their situation. The fact that God was greater than their troubles. The fact that God was greater than the pain that they were feeling. So what do we do in painful circumstances? The Bible says sing praises unto God. Because in everything, we're supposed to give thanks. In everything, we're supposed to give thanks. Folks, if Paul and Silas had not prayed something about victory and something about being delivered from this situation, there would be no reason for the other prisoners to be still in the cells. There would be no reason for the other prisoners not to run out. They had to have heard something that identified to them that these two guys are the reasons everybody's bands have fallen off and changes disappeared and so forth. The only thing that would keep everybody else in jail still in place is to recognize that these guys are behind the earthquake some way or another. I've never known of an earthquake to be so concentrated and so specific about what it damages. The walls didn't fall down. The jail didn't, didn't suffer any destruction. This was a chain-targeted earthquake. And the way that it happened had to be such that everybody in that jail knew. We better listen to what these guys say. So they stay put. In everything, give thanks. 
in everything give thanks. Paul writing to the, Philippi, to the city of Philippi, the Philippian church, said in, in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, he said, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. I wonder if Paul had any credibility with the Philippians. Well, this is what happened in their city. When Paul and Silas come out of jail and the story gets told about what happened and how, and it's not just these guys that are telling the story now, everybody else in the prison is a witness to it too. When Paul writes back to the Philippians in what we read in chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul is simply saying, remember how we handled our adversity. This is how you should handle yours. In everything, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious or fret about anything. Now, folks, this is the will of God concerning you. Remember what Paul said, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's God's will for you to give thanks in everything. Not for everything, but in everything. Because it's the way to victory. It's the way to victory. It's always been the way to victory. It shows in the Old Testament that singing and praising God when you go out against your enemies brings victory in your battle. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. He's the example, the father of faith that we're supposed to follow. Abraham was facing some impossible things. But in everything, we give thanks. Well, he did. And the impossible became a reality. Jonah was in the belly of the fish. He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. In other words, he relied on the word of God and the things that God had promised him. And then he said, I will look toward thy temple. In the belly of the fish, he said, I will look toward thy temple. And I don't believe that means he turned around and faced east. He's talking about the same thing Jehoshaphat said about the temple of God. When we're in trouble, if we seek you in this temple and set our face to seek you, didn't you say you'd help us and deliver us? Well, that's what Jonah is saying. I will look toward thy temple and offer the sacrifice of praise. Why? Because praising God is what brings the victory. Praising God for what his word says is what brings the victory. It's what brings the victory every time. Folks, turn with me over to um, Isaiah chapter 12. Now, as we've said before and we say a lot, God doesn't change. So he's not any different in the new covenant than he was in the old covenant. We have a better covenant established upon better promises. But the old covenant events and the things that happened were to show us principles that we can use and utilize. Isaiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Isaiah said, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comforted me. Behold, God is my salvation. Now, salvation under the old covenant had to be looking forward because it couldn't be realized, it couldn't be obtained until Jesus went to the cross and was uh, raised from the dead. 
So salvation under the old covenant meant God's help. It meant God covering over the sins of Israel until the Messiah would come. But we know what salvation is because it's inside of us. We don't just have a promise to it and something that we're looking toward the future to obtain. Salvation is of the Lord. So when he talks about God delivering him and when he talks about the anger of God being turned away, that's a reference to Jesus in the picture of the new covenant. So he says in verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Notice how praise is associated with salvation, which again we know is the new birth. Notice how praise, offering thanksgiving unto God, is mentioned when Isaiah is talking about that which we received, not which they received, but which we received through Jesus. Now notice verse 3. Therefore, therefore, because we've been made part of the family of God, because we've been recreated in spirit, because we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Therefore, with joy, everybody say joy. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Remember in, Acts, in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus talking with the woman at the issue of, I'm sorry, Jesus talking at the, Jesus talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. Remember what he told her? He said, people that drink this water shall thirst again, but he that drinketh the water that I give him shall never thirst. But it shall be a well of water within him. A well of water. He talks about salvation or the recreated human spirit that occurs at the new birth. He talks about that as being a well of water within you. And here the Old Testament is telling us how to draw water from the well. What draws water from the well? Joy. And everything give thanks. Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Folks, the well of salvation is a well of victory. It's a well of healing. It's a well of health. How do you draw healing from the healing well? With joy. How do you draw peace from the, the well of salvation? Joy. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Let me close this with Hebrews chapter 13. Talking about Jesus, Hebrews 13 verse 15, it says, By him, talking about Christ Jesus, by him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In everything give thanks. Lillian B. Yeomans was a medical doctor that practiced in the city of uh, Chicago. She and her sisters were both doctors, uh, had their medical degree and their uh, license to practice medicine. And her father had been a doctor, was a well-respected doctor in the city of Chicago too. That, is, is that what I said before? She's in Chicago? Well, they were in Chicago. Anyway. 
And she wound up being addicted to morphine. She was able to prescribe it for herself and she used it for different purposes to work through long nights and stuff like that and anyway got herself hooked on it and it destroyed her life it took everything that she had it just left her penniless left her broken and so she went to the Lord and said Lord I'm going to find out if there's anything in the Bible that will help me well she found out all the Bible says about healing she received her healing was gloriously changed and it became a real witness to the medical community at that time because of the miraculous turnaround that took place well she quit practicing medicine and began praying for people for healing and because her father had left them an inheritance a part of that inheritance was a big house two or three story house as I understand it with a lot of bedrooms and they turned those bedrooms into healing rooms she and her sister worked together mostly with people whose cases were incurable, who medical science had given up on. And there was a big waiting list because the room, the, there were only so many rooms. And so she and her sister would take care of the care of these people. And it wasn't a large number that were there. It was only like seven or eight, something like that, were able to be in the house at one time. And they would minister to them and, and treat them in exactly the same way every day. They would go in in the morning and the evening for each one and they would read Galatians chapter 3 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Well, then they go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and the last half of the chapter talks about all the things that are part of the curse of the law that Christ has redeemed us from. Well, a lot of that is sickness and disease. So they would feed them in the morning and in the evening and minister the same way to them by reading those scriptures. And they had hundreds of people saved. And again, most of these people were people that medical science had given up on. So they were hopeless conditions. And they just had a remarkable record of getting people saved. Well, there was this one woman that after she was provided a room in uh, Dr. Yeoman, in the Yeoman sister's home, she had been there for only a couple of days. And the same thing happened. They treated her the same way they did everybody else. Galatians 3, Deuteronomy 28, morning and evening. And after one of these times in the morning when Dr. Yeomans had uh, left the room, this woman, this lady who was a Christian, had a vision. And here's what the vision was about. She saw one of these giant scales, you know, the, the scales of justice type thing. She saw one of these giant scales. And on one side, it had, the, it had two baskets in it, uh, one on either side. One basket was labeled prayer. And it was all the way at the bottom, loaded up. And the other basket was labeled praise. And Jesus spoke to her as she saw this vision. And he said, when your praise balances out your prayer, 
that's when your healing shall come. So she started praising God. She started singing little songs. She sang other songs that she knew, but there were a lot of songs from the hymn book that might not fit her situation so, so much. So she wound up singing just little spiritual songs. She'd just make up these little things on her own, just sing songs, little, little ditties. And she began to sing and to praise throughout the, the whole house. The, the louder she got, more people would catch on. They'd start singing and praising God or themselves. And in just a, a short period of time, within about a week or so, she had another vision, just like the first one. But this one, instead of the prayers weighting down the praise, this time the scales balanced out evenly. And she was instantly healed by the power of God. She jumped out of bed, which she couldn't have done otherwise. She ran around the room. Dr. Yeomans and her sister heard feet stomping upstairs, and nobody that they had at the time would be walking around, so they ran upstairs to see what was going on. By this time, she's running to other people's rooms, shouting and hollering and praising God. Other people caught on to it themselves, and there were three other people in that house that were healed at the same time. They'd done the same thing. They heard her praising God, and it got over on them. So when her answer came, the answer for some of the others came too. Folks, that's what Paul is talking about. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise continually. That is the fruit of our lips, singing praises and joy unto the Lord. I want to challenge you on something, folks. Whatever your situation is, whatever trouble you might be in, quit praying. Just claim your victory based on the scriptures that you've been standing and start singing and thanking God for the answer. Somebody said, don't know who to attribute it to, but somebody said that praise is the highest type of faith. Again, Romans chapter 4 says of Abraham that he was strong in faith, not because he prayed a lot, giving glory to God. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Praise God. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and do just that. Whatever you're facing, tell the Lord, we've talked about this enough. Now I'm just thanking you for the answer. We bless you, Father. We worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that our prayer is based on your word. We thank you, Father, that victory is ours in every situation. Your word says, we which have believed do enter into rest. We enter into the rest of thanksgiving. We thank you, Father, for the answer. We thank you for our healing. We thank you for the deliverance that we need. We thank you, Father, for the finances, for bringing in the finances that we need, Father. We thank you that our prayers are answered. They're not going to be answered. They've already been answered. So we worship you, Master. We glorify your holy name. Thank you, Father, that we're redeemed by the curse of the law, redeemed from the curse of the law by the stripes of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that Jesus redeemed us from the curse, every evil thing. We're redeemed from sin. We're redeemed from spiritual death. We're redeemed from sickness. We're redeemed from poverty in Jesus' name. We magnify you, Lord. In the midst of painful things, we give you thanks.
In the midst of fearful things, we give you thanks. In the midst of impossible things, we give you thanks. In the midst of depressing things, we give you thanks. In the midst of everything, we give you thanks. Thank you, Father, that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Thank you, Father, that nothing can separate us from your love. And your love is our victory. Hallelujah. We bless you, Father. We magnify your holy name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done. Thank you, Father, you are the most high God. Lord, we pray Jehoshaphat's prayer just the way he did it. Are you not God? Is there not power to deliver each one of us? We believe there is, Father, and therefore we give you thanks. Therefore, we thank you. We praise your name. For you are good and your mercy endures forever. 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 Hallelujah. We bless you, Father. We offer you the sacrifice of praise, not because we feel like praising you, not because everything is good and right, but because deliverance is ours. Victory is ours. Healing is ours. Abundance is ours. Peace is ours. Joy is ours. Bless you, Lord Jesus. We bless you, Lord Jesus. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy to deliver endures forever. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. F.F. Bosworth is the author of the book, Christ the Healer. It's the best thing on healing anybody's ever put together. It's the most comprehensive thing, in my opinion. And he was, that scripture that we just read, in, uh, or I guess we didn't read it. We referred to it over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. We which have believed do enter into rest. That was his signature scripture. And he said of that scripture this. He said, when you come to the place where you can praise God for your answer, that's the rest of faith. One of the definitions of the word faith means unquestioning trust or unquestioning confidence. <clears throat> when you get through all the questions, and we all have questions at times, but when you work your way through all the questions and there's nothing left but just thanking God for his word, that's the rest that brings us into victory. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Come on back for healing school tonight and you're dismissed.